Today on the Matt Walsh Show, there's a common thread linking the mass shooting in Texas to so many other mass shootings and much of the crime and violence in our society that is fatherlessness. This is the aspect of the problem that the media doesn't want to talk about, but we will today. Also, reports now suggest that the cops on the scene at the shooting took upwards of 90 minutes to neutralize the shooter. How could that have happened? And does this disprove the good guy with a gun concept, as the left is claiming? Of course not. I'll explain. Plus, Barack Obama puts out what may be the worst tweet of the decade. Beto makes an ass of himself once again. Evergreen headline there. Another teacher records herself grooming her students in our daily cancellation. Is it true that we're the only country where these kinds of mass shootings happen? We'll deal with that false narrative today and much more on The Matt Walsh Show. It's time, parents. Time to finally cross off one of the most important things on your to-do list, life insurance. Fabric makes getting a great life um, term life insurance policy for your family quick, easy, and surprisingly affordable. Fabric was built specifically for parents to help you manage your family's financial future like a parenting pro, stress-free. Fabric's new lower prices mean significant savings over other providers with great policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Everything is on your schedule with uh, Fabric because it's all online. Less than 10 minutes to apply and you could be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. Then just personalize your quote to fit your family's needs. It's as simple as that. With Fabric's online hub, it's easy to track your family finances all in one place. Get affordable life insurance, set up your kid's college savings plan, and even establish a rainy day savings fund. Planning for the future has never been easier. There's no risk to apply today. Fabric has a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. Protect your family with term life insurance now in just 10 minutes. Apply today at meetfabric.com Walsh. That's meetfabric.com Walsh to start protecting your family today. M-E-E-T fabric.com Walsh. Fabric insurance agency policies issued by Vantis Life, not available in New York and Montana. Price is subject to underwriting and health questions. Details are emerging, as the media likes to put it, about the mass shooter who slaughtered 21 people, including 19 children, at an elementary school in Texas. Um, You don't need to read these details because they're entirely predictable. In fact, uh, I did predict them. I accurately predicted his whole life story, basically, yesterday on this show before having read these reports. Not because I'm Nostradamus. These are, you know, there are certain things we all always assume about these shooters and we're almost always right, all of us. The patterns are so clear that even the the least perceptive among us can help but notice them. Even if some of those in the least perceptive group, including much of the news media, which certainly falls into that group, would prefer that we don't notice them. According to his family and those who knew him, we're told that the shooter was a loner, didn't have many friends, spent, uh, it would seem, most of his time alone, online, staring at various screens, had a history of bizarre, disturbing behavior. He once came to school with self-inflicted cuts all over his face. And of course, the most inevitable detail of all, he did not have a father in the home. His home life was not stable. He lived apparently with his mom. In fact, um, some of the information about his personal life is coming from the mother's boyfriend, not the shooter's father. Not much is known about the father, except that he lives somewhere else in the neighborhood and he has a criminal record. So does the mother, another revelation that surprises nobody. Shortly before the shooting, he moved out of his mom's house. Cops were called. There's all kinds of domestic things going on. Moves in with his grandmother, and his grandmother was the first person he shot on the day of his bloody rampage. Unstable home life, no father in the home, mass shooter. This is not a unique combination. A huge and disproportionate number of mass shooters come from fatherless homes. Now, it's not an airtight rule, of course. 
sometimes boys raised in homes with both a mom and a dad, uh, will still lash out in the most violent ways imaginable, as was the case, I believe, with the shooter in Buffalo. I think he had both a mother and father in the home. But those are really the exceptions. And even in those cases, the father may have been present physically. That doesn't mean he was present in any of the ways that really matter. Now, there's no way to really know how many mass shooters come from homes with fathers who were present physically and actively invested in their children's lives, because that's not the same thing, necessarily. And you can't quantify that. It doesn't lend itself to bar graphs. But there's every reason to assume that the number is very small, if not zero. I mean, the number of mass shooters that come from, from homes where the father is there and actively engaged and invested in his, in his children's lives. What's the number? How many, how many homes like that have produced a mass shooter? I think we have every reason to assume that it's very, very small. And the problem runs much deeper. Mass shooting statistics are just the tip of the iceberg, of course. Over 60% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. Over 80% of youths in prison are from fatherless homes. 70% of high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. 70% of kids in drug abuse treatment centers are from fatherless homes. Almost all of the gun violence in our cities, almost all of it is committed by young males who are raised without fathers. And we know that because the fatherless home rate in those communities often runs upwards of 80% or higher. The fatherless home epidemic is a verified, legitimate national emergency and should be treated as such. Now, the fatherless factor is just one part of the equation. Right? The other part is that nearly all of the kids who fall into these statistics are boys. You know, pretty much every mass shooter in American history, with rare exception, has been a male. 93% of the inmates in federal prison are men. 90% of murders are committed by men. The majority of rapists and child molesters are male. Again, not all, but the majority. Men are three, more, three, three times more likely to kill themselves. Much more likely to drop out of school. Much more likely to end up homeless. Much more likely to, to end up abusing drugs. Now, our culture looks at the picture as I painted it, and, well, they conclude that masculinity is toxic, right? A blight on the earth. And the culture then proceeds to try to fix the, the boy problem the way you fix, like, a dog. It sees that boys are inclined to be aggressive, so the culture wants to force them to be mild. It sees that boys are likely to take dangerous risks, so it encourages boys to take no risks at all. It sees that boys are, are wild, you know, so it tames them. It sees that boys are boys, and so it tries to turn them into girls, literally. And that strategy has been a disaster. As we work to try to sort of neuter and feminize boys, all of the problems listed above have only gotten worse. So what can we do about it? The solution brings us back to the beginning. Fathers. Boys need to be taught how to be boys. And they need fathers to teach them that. A mother can't really teach her son how to be a man any more than I could teach my daughter how to be a woman. I can teach her how a woman ought to be treated, and that's a very important lesson that fathers can provide to their daughters, but I can't shape her in her femininity the way that my wife can. Likewise, my wife cannot form and harness our son's masculinity the way that I can. And neither can we, of course, rely on TV or pop culture or the schools, media, the government, any of those institutions to do the job. They're not going to mold my son. They're just going to simply uh, obliterate him. 
or at best they're going to give him this kind of confused cartoon version of what a man is, which is why when you look around at society, you see a bunch of cartoon men walking around. Not so much masculine as like imitating what they think masculinity is supposed to be. So everywhere a boy turns, if he can't turn to his father, he will find powerful forces trying to drag him into self-loathing, despair, confusion. Now, you know, you hear from feminists all the time that say that masculinity is fragile. And they're sort of right, actually, uh, because a boy's identity is, in a way, a fragile thing. The same is true of girls. You know, children are, in a lot of ways, fragile. Um, we often hear how kids are very resilient, and, and in certain respects they are. Like a kid can take a tumble from six feet high and uh, just get up and hop up and be perfectly fine, whereas you know, if it were me, I would be laying in bed for the next five and a half weeks. But emotionally and psychologically, they're not resilient, actually. It's just that a lot of times the harm that's done to them, you can't see it manifest right away, so you assume that they're fine, but they're not. Children need to be formed in their identity. They need, they need to be protected. Or they'll be consumed by all these evil forces out there. So a boy needs someone, his father namely, to show him what to do. How to maneuver in the world. How to harness his masculine energy. How to be a boy. How to be a man. Or else he'll figure it out on his own, finding no help anywhere else. And the result may literally kill him. And dozens more, perhaps. Now, it should be clear to anybody listening, if they're listening honestly, so that's not going to count like media matters, um, but if you're listening honestly, it should be clear that the point here is not to make excuses for young men who do horrible things, okay? The point is to figure out how to produce fewer young men who do horrible things. That should be our objective. And if we all agree that more young men these days seem to be doing horrible things, that that would mean that this is not inevitable. It doesn't need to be this way. Something can be done to reverse the trend. And it's, and it's got to go way beyond changing, uh, you know, it, 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 it goes way beyond anything that like a simple policy can, can fix. And it's got nothing to do with gun control. Because even if we were to pretend that you could uh, make a change to gun control laws that would actually prevent every potentially bad person from getting their hands on a gun, which you can't, but I'm just saying for the sake of argument, hypothetically, if you could. I mean, make a change, and so it's going to make it that all these, uh, all these horrible young men can't get their hands on guns. Okay, well, we still have all these horrible people, though, don't we? That, that's still a big problem. And there's still a danger to society. Like, even if you were able to remove one of the potential tools they could use to inflict damage, one of the potential weapons, can't remove them all. And we're still stuck in a society with these kinds of people. So the, the, the real question is how to produce fewer of them. Not how to produce fewer men or fewer boys generally, but fewer of these types of people. And this is what we can do. Have fathers in the home, raising their sons. We can and should do other things too, but it should start with getting fathers back in the home and keeping them there. Fathers and mothers both play an integral role in the spiritual and emotional formation of a child. You take one or both away, 
And there's a chance that uh, the child becomes emotionally and spiritually deformed. Not just a chance, a very good chance. This is a very simple formula. There's no disputing it, just ignoring it. And oftentimes in our society, we do choose to ignore it. And I think for a few reasons. For one thing, the left-wing cultural narrative requires us to deny the distinction between men and women, which means denying the distinction between mothers and fathers. According to progressivism, the nuclear biological family is but one type of arrangement, one variant, which is equal in every way to families with one mom or two moms or three dads or whatever. And none can be judged more ideal than the others. Even though progressives obsess over organic milk and free-range chickens, they pretend that the natural organic family, the family as it was meant to be, as it naturally is, is in no way superior to the modified versions. Um, But to connect violence to broken homes is to admit that kids benefit from having mom and dad in the same house, which is why they don't want to admit that. Progressives can make no such admission. So they continue blaming bad things on inanimate objects rather than fatherlessness and divorce. But for another thing beyond ideology, I think we ignore the family's role in all this because it hits literally too close to home for a lot of us. Some single mothers bizarrely see a discussion about fatherhood as an attack on them, for example. Anytime this conversation comes up, you'll often hear from single mothers say, what are you saying? That 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 my son's automatically going to become a mass shooter? No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that the situation you're in, and it might not be your fault if you're a single mother. I mean, it might, it might also be your fault or might partially be your fault. A lot of times it's a, it's a you know, 50-50 kind of situation. But every situation is different. Well, there's plenty of single mothers. It's not their fault. The father walked out on them. Not their fault. Father died. Father's in prison. Not your fault. Yet the point is, it's not an ideal situation. Like you would, I, I hope, admit that it'd be better if there was an active, involved, good father in the home. You'd think we could all admit that, but apparently we can't. People don't like talking about the problems with the way modern families are often structured because often it means that they're looking critically at their own family structure. And nobody wants to do that. But no matter how, no matter how much we ignore it, the recipe remains the same. Okay, You start with a boy, take away his father, or his father takes himself out of the equation. This is often the case. Uh, You sit him in front of a screen all day. You feed him an endless stream of content. You feed him porn. Give him no moral formation, no guidance, no companionship, uh, no role models, no mentorship. And then when he starts acting weird, you give him drugs. Keep him isolated. Add a few years into it, and that's how you make a school shooter. That's how you make so many terrible things. We have to understand this recipe. Because if we understand it, and acknowledge it, and confront it, then we will know the solution. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, you know, I don't do uh, birthday shout-outs on this show, but I'll make an exception for my own kids, the twins, who turned nine today. Uh, not that they listen to this show. I would never allow that, of course. I'm not crazy. But they turned nine, and um, so we have, we have nine-year-olds somehow. And it's always a, it's a weird thing as a parent, um, you know, as your kids kind of grow older, 
and all parents talk about how it goes so fast. You know, it's it's this interesting dynamic where the years fly by, but but sometimes you know the days can kind of drag on. A day feels like a million years, but the year feels like a day. That's kind of how what it feels like to be a parent. And um, I think one of the reasons for that is that you you always sort of feel like a new parent. You know, you always have in the back of your mind this realization that you have no idea what you're doing. You're just kind of making it up as you go, and that's and that's every parent. And I didn't realize that until I became a parent. And it's very it's like you because when you're a kid, you look at your parents and you think, well, they got it all figured out. They know what they're doing. Then you become a parent, you realize, oh, they were just, they didn't, they had no idea. And that's because as kids age, it, it always introduces new phases of parenting, and those new phases have their own challenges. So you're always kind of a rookie because you're going into the new phase. You've never been here before, and so you're, you're, it's almost like you're starting from scratch. And even after you feel like you've mastered a particular phase or stage of parenting or age of child, right, then if you have more kids, the next kid will introduce some new wrinkle. Like you feel like you'll have, you've had a few kids, you've had, so you've had a few three-year-olds and you think, well, I got the three-year-old thing down. I got that. Then you have another kid and then she starts doing stuff that the other three-year-old didn't do. And, and you're like, well, hang on a second. This isn't how this is supposed to work. So that's the way it goes. Anyway, uh, so it's their birthday today. Happy birthday to them. It's kind of a landmark occasion actually, because um, this is the first birthday where the twins have wanted their own parties. Uh, and my response to that was, well, too bad. Just like you have the same birthday, it's gonna be the same party. You'll share. But then my mom, my uh, but then I, I, I keep hearing how well they have, they have to have their own identities and everything. So, um, so we give them their own parties, and uh, which means that you know, the, my son has a party, my daughter has a party, and then but none of the parties are actually on the actual birthday. So then it's like really three, three birthdays we're doing for all the kids. My wife's in heaven because birthdays, parties, presents—that's her love language. She loves it. Um, all right. Well, uh, I want to want to go to this, and there's still a lot. I'm almost hesitant to read it because there's still so much we don't know, and there's a, a whole lot of questions. But you know, it, it's it's important. The questions have to be asked, which is why I think uh, it's it's worth looking at this story. So this is what we're being told. Going back to the uh, tragic situation down in Texas, this is from the Daily Mail. It says. Frantic parents of the children murdered in their Texas school screamed at law enforcement officers to enter the school and discuss storming the building to rescue their kids. Um, Harrowing footage shows, and there's some of the footage that's circulating online. I'm not going to play it because it's not even, it's not, it's really not clear, especially if you're just listening to audio, what exactly is happening in the footage. But the claim anyway is that this was footage taken while the shooting was happening. And you can see in the footage, a whole bunch of police officers, heavily armed, just kind of like standing there. And what they're doing is just stopping the parents from going into school. They don't appear to be doing much of anything else. Um, It says, it emerged that the gunman was only stopped when authorities obtained a key to open the classroom door. They couldn't break the door now. New footage shows the chaotic crowd outside the school as heavily armed sheriffs and law enforcement stand guard and hold them back. In one case, seemingly wrestling a panic-stricken woman to the ground and pinning her down. What are you doing? Get inside the building, one person could be heard screaming. Another woman could be heard saying, they're trapped inside as howls of pained anguish rang out in the background. It was unclear what time the footage was shot. It also emerged Wednesday that Customs and Border Patrol agents who rushed the scene had to grab a key from school staff to open the door of the classroom where the bloodbath took place. 
So here's the timeline, according to this Daily Mail article, according to the reports. The first 911 call was received at 11.32 a.m. on Tuesday. This was the 911 call saying when, when they saw the guy crash his car, get out with a rifle and make his way into the door, they got a, they got a 911 call. Okay. The gunman was not killed until 1 p.m. An hour and a half later, after a Border Patrol agent was given a key to the door. I've seen other reports that it was like 40 40 minutes to an hour. But whether we're talking about an hour, an hour and a half, it's just, it's unthinkable. And, And again, a lot of questions already the picture that we're getting here is quite different from the picture that first emerged, and that's often the case. Um, as this, as you know, as kind of the fog parts a little bit, things become a little bit clearer, and you start, and, and there are certain details that come out that you didn't know initially, and that might happen here that clarifies some of this. But right now, as the story stands, we're looking at potentially 90 minutes between 911 call. There's somebody with a rifle going into an elementary school, and then he's not shot dead for an hour and a half, half later. And it's not because the elementary school is out in the middle of nowhere and it took them an hour and a half to get there somehow. I don't know where an elementary school would have to be located for that to be the case. But they were there on the scene, according to these reports, though, including including from parents who were there and are speaking out. They didn't go in the building. They had to wait for a key? You, You don't have a way to break the door down? How... What could this this scumbag have done to barricade that door that you had no way of opening it? And did the classroom have windows? I guess we don't know that. But if it had windows, then why don't you break in the windows? One thing that we're hearing from some people, especially on social media, that are trying to make excuses, it seems to me, they're saying, well, pro- protocol, they had to wait for backup. But no, it's actually not protocol. See, this was the situation in Columbine where you had cops waiting for backup. And ever since then, the protocol has been, you don't wait for backup, you go in because there are kids being killed right now. Now, it's one thing if it's a hostage situation, okay? If, if, if no shot has been fired and there's a, a, a guy taking kids hostage in a classroom, well, now it's a more delicate situation and you might not just rush in there because then you might get the kids killed. And that's when you get into the hostage negotiation. But if, they're, if he's just executing everybody in the room, then you rush in. There's nothing to think about. And that does not appear to be what happened here. And this excuse of they had to wait for a key, it's just mind-boggling. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on law enforcement tactics or the sort of uh, resources they have at their disposal. But I'm pretty sure that cops have ways of breaking doors down. Pretty sure they do. So that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And and uh, by the way, I understand it's easy for me to say, right? I'm sitting here very comfortably, and I'm not the one who has to charge in there into gunfire. And you know, there's a there's a a, a not insignificant chance of getting shot and killed. So I, that's so it's easy for me to say, true. But it's still it's still correct that this is your job. And if you're a police officer. And you're too afraid to charge it potentially into gunfire in a situation like this, then get off of the force and get a different job because this is your job. Okay, it's just like if there's a, a, 
you know, a plane crash where things go wrong on the plane and the, the pilot just panics and, and freezes up and then the plane crashes and kills everybody. Yeah, it's easy for me to say, well, that pilot, this is on the pilot. He should have, he should have uh, done his job. It's easy. But I'm not a pilot. That's not the job that I'm taking on. You, you take on this responsibility uh, when you decide that you want to become a pilot. Well, if you're a police officer, this is, the, this is the responsibility you assume. It's to handle situations like this. And I think this is pretty fair. If you don't want to do it, then, then don't have the job. Let someone who is willing to take that risk, take that job. And I just can't, like, wouldn't every, you don't even need to be a hero, it would seem to me. It's just your, your it's almost like a biological impulse Okay, it's one thing if there's some kind of sh- shooting going on back and forth at a, at a drug house or on a street corner between drug dealers. And you're a little bit more hesitant to get involved there. But when, when little kids are being executed, wouldn't every fiber of your being just compel you to go in there? Uh, there, there are a lot of questions being raised here that need to be answered. And, um, you know, immediately after this, we heard about one of the, one of the first things we heard from uh, the local officials and from the governor is that the first responders were heroic and we should, you know, be thankful to the heroic first responders. Well, somebody did eventually go in there and kill this guy. And, and uh, that person, I don't know, you know, if, if one of the reports that we're hearing is that somebody showed up, I think it was what they're saying is a border patrol agent, and he just went in and, and he took care of it. And if that's what happened, then, yeah, that guy's a hero. But you're not necessarily a hero just because you're on the scene. There's nothing heroic about having the job and showing up. If you're there sitting outside because you're too afraid to go in, then that's not heroic. So maybe we should hold off on just declaring everybody that was there a hero. Okay, because it, it, there's a chance here that um, some of the people were, were quite the opposite of heroic and need to be fired for it at a minimum. And I just can't, as I keep saying, there could be other details that come out, but 90 minutes, uh, it's impossible for me to understand how that could happen. But here's the other point that I, that I think is really important to make here. This does not disprove. Let's just say if these reports are accurate and there were law enforcement officers on the scene for upwards of 90 minutes waiting outside and not going in, does that disprove the good guy with a gun? As the left calls it, the good guy with a gun theory. Does it disprove that, well, good guys with guns, uh, they're, they're not the solution here? No, it doesn't. It proves it, Okay. Because if there are officers, if there are officers with guns outside not going in, and we're all very upset about that, as we should be, why are we upset about that? Because we know that they could go in with their guns and stop this. Now, if you don't think that good guys with guns can even do anything anyway, that's gonna, if you think that's not going to solve the problem, then you have no right to be upset at the, uh, at the people that were standing outside the school with their guns not going in. Because according to you, they can't solve the problem anyway. Only if you think and know, obviously, 
that good guys with guns can solve these kinds of problems, um, or at least, at a, at a minimum, greatly mitigate the damage that is done in these situations, if you believe that, then, of course, you're going to be upset because you know what they could have done. This is, this is the common theme here, right? It's, it's whether it's a good guy with a gun or a bad guy with a gun, it comes down to the guy and the choices that he makes. So, right, no one is saying that just putting a gun into the hand of a good guy is going to, that's all you have to do. He has to use it. And he also, very importantly here, has to know how to use it and has to have the proper training. But we're going the opposite direction in our, in our country, right? When you, when you defund the police, you take resources away, that means you're going to have less training. And, um, and the more that police are villainized and the, the, the fewer people who want to become police officers, standards get lowered. For, standards are getting lowered for a lot of reasons, that being one of them. So you have people that are less fit for the job. They have less training. So no, the gun in and of itself isn't going to solve the problem any more than the gun in and of itself creates the problem. What you need are good guys with guns that have proper training and are willing to act. That's what you need. And guess what? If you have those things, then yes, you can prevent a lot of these things from happening in the first place. And when, God forbid, they do happen, you can greatly mitigate the the carnage. But you need training, you need funding, and you need people that are willing to do what they're supposed to do. And as I said yesterday, we sent the $40 billion to to, uh, uh, Ukraine. And we send billions more to foreign countries every single year. With that kind of money, you know, what I think maybe you could, there's a lot of training and a lot of uh, equipping that could be done with that kind of money. All right. Beto O'Rourke showed up at a press conference yesterday. The press conference was supposed to be the governor updating people about the shooting. Um, but Beto decided to use this press conference about dead children to grandstand and pull a political stunt to help his campaign. We have a little bit of that footage. Let's watch that. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Sit down. You're out of, you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down. Don't play this. Next shooting is right now, and you are doing nothing. No. Please give it. This isn't the place to talk to this over. This is totally predictable. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you're out of line. Please leave this auditorium. I can't believe you're a sick that would come to a deal like this to make a political issue. So that's Beto just using uh, 19 dead children as a stage for a political stunt. And that, of course, is all that is. There's no, obviously, no excusing that whatsoever. Uh, You want to get up and make your point about Governor Abbott, whatever dumb point you have to make. 
Well, you can, Beto O'Rourke's very good at finding cameras. He's not very good at, at, at much of anything else, but he can find cameras, get himself in front of cameras. And so you could have your own little press conference, do whatever you want. But this was a press conference. This was not a political rally or something like that. This was a press conference updating people about this situation. And Beto O'Rourke shows up. And, and the reporting is that, no surprise here, this was all this was all planned and staged ahead of time. Apparently, this is even this is even mainstream media reporting, surprisingly, uh, saying that he that it, it, he sent in people, Beto did, ahead of time to save a seat for him in the front row. And he didn't want to go in first. He didn't want to be there. You know, there's like 15 minutes where everybody's milling around and getting set up. And he didn't want to be there because it would maybe tip people off. So he, had, he, he sent people in to save him the seat. And then he snuck in there and then he did his little routine. Uh, Governor Abbott, after the fact, responded to this outburst, and here's what he said. There are, there are family members. There are family members who are crying as we speak. There are family members whose hearts are broken. There's no words that anybody shouting can come up here and do anything to heal those broken hearts. We all, every Texan, every American has a responsibility where we need to focus not on ourselves and our agendas. We need to focus on the healing and hope that we can provide to those who have suffered unconscionable damage to their lives and loss of life. We need all Texans. To, in this one moment in time, put aside personal agendas. Think of somebody other than ourselves. Think about the people who were hurt and help those who have been hurt. Uh, those are the nice thoughts, but the problem is that Beto O'Rourke is incapable of thinking of anyone but himself. He's just totally incapable of that. And this is, uh, we're being led by people like this. Now, we're not being led by Beto O'Rourke because he keeps running for office and losing. But we're being led by people like Beto O'Rourke. That even when kids are killed in a mass shooting, he still cannot. It's this, it's instinctive reaction. How can I use this? Oh, this is, a, this is what he's thinking. This is an opportunity for a publicity stunt. They probably sit around, sat around in a room with people talking about this. Well, how can we use this? What's how can we use this for for PR? What what are what are our uh, PR opportunities here? And look, I, I know that it's uh, it's cliche at this point to complain about the politicization and the exploitation of uh, of tragedy, but just just because it's a cliche doesn't mean it's not true. In fact, uh, one of the this is it is because it is true that this has become a cliche. And yes, as long as politicians have existed, you've had politicians exploiting tragedy. But when this is like everybody leading the country and the government, when they're all like this, when they don't even seem to have anywhere within them the human instinct to actually be upset and and sad and mourn over lost life, when they don't even have that in them. And when your whole government is run by people like this, that's when it becomes a major problem. And speaking of which, Barack Obama, speaking of people who are totally empty inside, here's what he tweeted. 
And this, I, I, honest to God, I saw this and I just stared at it for a minute because I thought this has got to be, this is so on the nose. There's just, did he really tweet this? This has got to be some kind of Photoshop, some kind of joke, but it's not. So Barack Obama tweeted, as we grieve the children of Uvalde today, we should take time to recognize that two years have passed since the murder of George Floyd under the knee of a police officer. His killing stays with us all to this day, especially those who loved him. Uh, and he, oh, he continues. In the aftermath of his murder, a new generation of activists rose up to challenge their anguish into organized action, launching a movement to raise awareness of blah, blah, blah. Okay, I don't give a damn. Uh, he's tying it into George Floyd. Because Barack Obama was upset. I guess yesterday was, what, the second anniversary of uh, George Floyd's death, and people weren't talking about that, so he wanted, to, he wanted to find a way to loop it all back around. Hey, I know you guys are mourning today over uh, the fact that 20 children were, were killed, but remember George Floyd? That's what we really should be talking about. Okay, George Floyd was a violent criminal lowlife hopped up on fentanyl who died while resisting arrest because he was trying to pass counterfeit bills. And you're drawing any, you're putting him in the same sentence as innocent children were slaughtered in mass at school? Like these are comparable in any way whatsoever? And after he tweeted this, of course, the left is defending him. And uh, I, I started seeing these other articles that have been written recently. There was one, I think it was in the Atlantic, I don't remember, uh, saying that, lamenting the fact that, uh, well, George Floyd's memory is, is fading. We're all forgetting about George Floyd already. Well, first of all, I wish. But second, wh- why shouldn't it fade? Why should, why should we remember his death exactly? No one's ever really explained that. Like, lots of people die in this country every single day. And there are certain people who are worthy of being remembered and mourned by the entire nation. And many of them are, are, are not, though. But there are certain people who are worthy of that. All the children who were killed in the mass shooting. Yes, remember and mourn them, the entire nation, the entire world. That's, that's, that is a tragedy worthy of, uh, of and, and, and which calls to be remembered and mourned. But George Floyd, just some criminal scumbag who forced his way into a woman's home and robbed her at gunpoint? And despite what we're told, no, he never cleaned his life up. Well, he cleaned his life up, but he died, hopped up on fentanyl trying to pass counterfeit bills. Like, that's how he cleaned his life up? No, he's just a, just a criminal. A man who was, a, who was a, a predator, preyed on his own community. Never contributed anything worthwhile to his community. Only, only contributed fear and... and crime and violence to it. Oh, we're forgetting George Floyd, so? That would actually be a sign of progress. It, it is a sick society that remembers, that specially remembers and mourns somebody like George Floyd. And it's an even sicker society that puts him on the same level and puts his death at the same level of tragedy as 20 kids who were killed. But this is all kind of, it's like wishful thinking because in actuality, uh, George Floyd is not being forgotten and he's the one, he still has his monuments and, uh, and streets named after him and he's going to have schools named after him soon enough and he's got the murals 
No, it's these kids who were killed. Um, they're the ones, outrageously, tragically, like who, who end up getting forgotten almost immediately. All right. Um, what else we got here? So there's a clip I wanted to play for you. Uh, I think we have time. Okay, I'm just going to play this. This, this is a, a leftist teacher who I guess is a coach to young kids, some kind of coach. And uh, she recorded herself teaching the kids about her insane pronoun nonsense. And I just want you to listen to a, a little bit. It's actually quite instructive to hear this. And she decided to record it herself and put it on TikTok. And let's listen. No matter what your gender identity is, you are okay exactly the way you are. And you are loved. It feels good to be yourself, doesn't it? The end. How did your girls like this book? Really good. Yeah. What about you? I am like JJ, so I'm not a boy or a girl. So, I have a question. Do you know why you call... How, how do you refer to a girl? You say she, right? Yeah. You say she is funny. And when you're talking to a boy, what do you say? He. He. And what should you say if you're talking to someone who is not a boy or a girl? Do you know? You say they. So if you're saying she is funny for a girl and you say he is funny for a boy, for somebody who's neither, you can say they are funny. Can you practice saying that? They are funny. So when you're talking about Coach Caroli, who is not a boy or a girl, what should you say? Where are you? Exactly, I'm not a boy or a girl. So what should you say they instead of he or she? They are funny. Good job, or Where they are, are my coach. Where are you? I'm neither. I am what the book calls non-binary. Can you say non-binary? I'm a boy I'm neither. and a girl. You're a boy and a girl, and that's okay, yeah, right? You're both. Huh? You're both. Yeah, you okay. can be both, or you can be neither. So once again, yet another example. And they keep they keep recording themselves doing this, and they they're so proud of it, and they put it online, and they uh, of course have no self awareness at all, which is the enduring irony with these people because they're totally obsessed with themselves and all they think about is themselves, but they also have no awareness of themselves, which is very interesting. Uh, and there's something to be said about that. Like the more that you, the more that you obsess over yourself and think about yourself, the less aware of yourself you actually are. But anyway, and they put this online and, and so they, they don't realize that this just complete, on top of they are telling on themselves and revealing themselves to be groomers and, uh, and they're showing off how creepy and disgusting they are. It also undermines their entire premise, because you can hear the kids, they audibly have no idea what's being said to them. They're just repeating it. And then you hear one of these, uh, one of these little kids in the background says, I'm a boy and a girl. And she latches onto that and affirms it. Oh, you're a boy and a girl. Yes. The kid has no idea. He's just, he's just saying words like all little kids do. And if you were to have a follow-up question and say, what, what do you mean by that? How are you a boy and a girl? It doesn't. He's, no, he, he wouldn't be able to explain it. Of course, because he's just a little kid. So even though we only heard the audio, we didn't see the, uh, the visual there. You could just imagine these kids just kind of sitting there wide-eyed, you know, sitting uh, Indian style, if I can still say that, on the carpet, looking up at the teacher, wide-eyed, just kind of nodding their heads. Uh, okay, okay. No clue what's being said to them. And that's how the indoctrination always works. Let's get now to the comment section. If you're a man, it's required that 
Mark says, Matt, what are pixie sticks? You got to be kidding me, Mark. Don't. How old are you? Do, do, do pixie sticks not exist anymore? I think they still exist, right? Uh, this is, this is, you know, this is kids, kids these days. When I was a kid, this is the kind of thing that we subsisted on, pixie sticks. And what, what, what I would, in fact, do is I would, uh, you know, I'd get an allowance. And my allowance was like, I think it was like $5 a uh, like five dollars a quarter, you know. Every several months, I get five bucks. But I would save it up, and then I would go to uh, you know, like the drugstore, and I'd get candy. And oftentimes, they had these uh, pixie sticks that were you know, there's the more normal pixie sticks, which were the size of about a pencil, and all it was was just sugar. Then we also had these, and I don't see these anymore. Okay, so kids don't know about these, but it's like these pixie sticks that were the size of of a, of a rope, like a jump rope, and it was just a tube full of sugar, and you would just chug those things. And that was. Uh, that was allowed back in the 90s, back in the good old days. Modern Papist says, what, um, or Papist, however you pronounce, however, whatever your preferred pronunciation is, what the shooter did was terrible, but we aren't to hope someone burns in hell, even if they are our enemy. We're called to pray for our enemies. We should pray for these souls that died, including the shooter. We should pray for the families of those that lost someone. We should pray for the kids that were traumatized. God will judge accordingly. Yes, you're correct. On, I, I recognize the, that you're correct on an intellectual level, but uh, when you're dealing with, I, I guess maybe unlike you, I just don't have the capacity uh, when, I'm, when I'm confronting evil at that level. I'll, I'll fully admit, I don't have the capacity for mercy or forgiveness with that kind of evil. Uh, David says, when they say this is a hill worth dying on, they forget one key element. You're dying on that hill, not for it. Hills are defensible positions from which you protect the entire land. By refusing to die on a hill, you're putting at risk everything which lies behind it. That's a very good point. I wish I had thought of it. But thank you for that, David. Uh, Spencer says, what would be more of a nightmare for you? Finding out that aliens do exist, but never meeting one in your lifetime or not being able to grow a beard for the rest of your life. Uh, well, finding out that aliens exist, but we can't meet them is not a nightmare at all. I actually, the only thing that would make, you know, I've often thought about how that would affect people. Because when, when you think about the, you know, you watch all the sci-fi movies and everything, it's usually aliens come here and they land and how is, how is that going to work? But um, if we ever do become really aware of, an, of the existence of an alien civilization, more than likely it'll, it'll come in a way where it's, it's, we're not able to actually make contact. Maybe some kind of radio signal or something like that. Um, and I've often thought about, well, how would that, how would that affect the world? Not, not if aliens land here, but just if, let's just say hypothetically, we were to get 100% confirmation undeniable confirmation that there is an, al- an intelligent alien civilization out there somewhere, somewhere in another solar system, but we can't make, but we can't, we'll never encounter them. They're, but we know that they're there. How would that affect us? And the nightmare, the depressing thing is that, of course, as I've realized, especially over the last few weeks, it would not affect us at all. Nobody would care at all. We would just go about our lives like it's, like it doesn't matter. Um, and Mike says, Matt's reaction to the shooting is painfully predictable. It's simple. USA both has more guns than any other country and more mass shootings. 
as well. The USA doesn't seem to take care of its lost souls as well as other countries do. Well, Mike, I'm glad you brought that up because that everything you just said there is completely false. Here's some exciting news. The Daily Wire's in-house ad sales team in Nashville is expanding, and we currently have a number of openings that we're working to fill on the team, including a client success manager, digital sales representative, senior ad operations manager, and senior audio and digital sales representative. The Daily Wire's ad sales department is a crucial division of the company that is responsible for driving advertising revenue across Daily Wire's digital and audio platforms. We're excited to be building out this in-house team with talented, experienced, and passionate individuals who will help to usher our partners into the next phase of audio and digital advertising. For details on all of the positions currently open on our ad sales team and to apply, visit dailywire.com slash careers. A full list of all the current openings at Daily Wire can be viewed there as well. So head to dailywire.com slash careers today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. It always feels like cheating to use a clip from The View for the daily cancellation, but sometimes it's unavoidable, such as the case here, where a one-minute exchange between the squawking hens on The View serves as a convenient rundown of all of the major misnomers and false narratives that we've been hearing over the past 24 hours. And uh, this is the great and sacred purpose of this show, I think, the public service it provides. It gives you a condensed, even more simplified summary of every dumb thing the left is saying about any given subject. And that is certainly the case here. And I'll let Whoopi take it away. Listen. That's the question. What are we doing? Because we're, we're, why are we always at square one with this? And I swear to God, if I see another Republican senator talk about their heart being broken, I'm going to go punch somebody. And thoughts and I, prayers. I can't take it in their thoughts and prayers. Yeah. If your thoughts and prayers were really with everybody, you'd have done something by now. It's not like anybody's not trying to make this happen. What the hell is going on? I want them to stop gaslighting me also. Stop saying it's not it's not guns that kill people, it's people that kill people. It's guns that kill people, okay? Stop saying the opposite. Stop saying that mental illness is behind this. There's mental illness in every country in the world and they don't have this problem. So stop gaslighting me on that one. And stop saying that you can have a good guy stop a bad guy with a gun. We have seen in both of these shootings in the past three weeks yeah. that a good guy tried and could not do and it. Was so stop for. gaslighting us. That about sums it up. Again, everything you heard there is standard leftist boilerplate. Uh, we hear all this after every mass shooting, and we've heard it all incessantly since the shooting in Texas. So let's go through it. First, we get the complaints about thoughts and prayers. You know, forget about your thoughts and prayers. They say we, we need to do something. But if you're religious, as at least a few of those women on The View claim to be, and as many of the people who complain about thoughts and prayers claim to be, then you should know that praying is doing something. It shouldn't be the only thing you do. You should do other things along with praying, but praying is something. And the good thing is that nobody's ever argued that all we should do is pray. But in the immediate moments after a travesty like this, unless you're physically on the scene and actively involved in that way, there may be nothing else you can do in that moment at that exact time, but pray. Okay? Like in the, in the five minutes after you hear about something like this, then it happened a thousand miles away. It's, I want to do something. Well, in that exact moment, for most people, there's probably like almost nothing you could do in those five minutes. But you can pray. And why shouldn't you? It's a good thing. This is not an either-or choice. It's not mutually exclusive. Praying doesn't prevent you from taking physical action. So what exactly is the complaint here? Do we really think that the problem in our society is that we're praying too much? Is that the source of our troubles, really? As for doing something, what do you want to do? Now, the just-do-something mentality is a scourge on our nation and on our body politic. No, we do not want our lawmakers simply doing things. 
They already do a lot of things. Contrary to popular belief, they're not doing nothing. They're doing a lot of things. It's just that most of what they do is ineffectual, wasteful, and often actively harmful and counterproductive. There's nothing wrong with offering your prayers after a mass shooting. There is something wrong with shouting into the void, somebody do something. That's a phrase that I would really like to stop hearing. No problem is solved by doing something. Problems are solved by doing particular things. Okay? It's, it's like if you have a flat tire, you're not going to solve it just by doing something. There's a, that's a, a, a particular problem, very small problem, and it'll be solved in a certain particular way. And that's true of every little small problem you encounter in your life. You don't solve it just by, just by randomly taking action. You solve it by in targeted, with targeted action. And that's also true of the very big problems in our society. And the reality is that the particular things the gun control proponents want to do, if you can even get them to propose any particular things, will not actually prevent mass shootings and have not prevented them, as we discussed yesterday. A lot of these somethings have already been put in place in many states and cities across America, and yet shootings still occur and occur quite often. Next, we hear that it's not people who kill people, but guns. And this is false, of course. The inverse cliche doesn't really work either. In truth, it's people with guns who kill people. But it's also people without guns who kill people. People without guns kill people. People with guns kill people. The common denominator here is what? People. Human choices, human behavior kills people. And so as we've been harping on, we have to get to the bottom of the human behavior if we really want to make a dent in this problem. And finally, and here's the talking point I want to spend some time with. We hear that this doesn't happen in other countries. And I've heard this over and over and over again since Tuesday. Uh, this doesn't happen in other countries, they say. We're the only country this sort of thing happens. What sort of thing? And I suppose they mean mass casualty attacks. In fact, The Onion on Wednesday changed their homepage so that every headline on the whole site says, no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. This is a very common claim. The United States is unique across the entire world in this respect, the left says. Are they right? No. Of course they aren't. I mean, not even a little bit, okay? It's not even a little right. In fact, just south of the border this week, uh, a guy in Mexico shot up a whole a, a hotel, uh, killing 11 people. That was this week, okay? This week. And yet we're told this only happens in America? That's not even true this week. In fact, mass casualty attacks happen all the time in Mexico, and all across Central and South America. They happen quite famously in the Middle East and all over Africa, many parts of Asia. Indeed, to make the claim that we're the only country where this kind of thing happens, you must disregard from the outset the vast majority of the globe and the vast majority of the people living on it. That seems like a rather important qualifier that the person claiming we're the only place where this happens should mention. They should stipulate by that by, when they say only place, when they, they mean the only place if you don't count almost the entire world. Of course, the mass shootings in a place like Mexico are often different than they are here uh, in the sense that they're, well, well, they're the same in that the victims, there still are victims who are being killed, but the attacks in Mexico are almost always cartel related. If you go to somewhere like East Africa, the terrorist group Al-Shabaab is usually responsible. In other parts of the world, it's a different terror cell or a different crime network. And that's because young, violent, hopeless, nihilistic men in Mexico are likely to end up working for cartels in East Africa. They're going to find they're going to find uh, Al Shabaab as their elder. In America, they either end up joining street gangs or they stay isolated in their mom's basement until one day they explode. Different manifestations, but a similar phenomenon. This is the reason, by the way, 
why rankings of school shootings are irrelevant. You've perhaps seen that um, Wikipedia list floating around showing that America has hundreds of school shootings while Afghanistan has had only three. What they neglect to mention is Afghanistan also only has like three people in school. There, There are lots of murders, lots of mass slaughter happening in that country and in many of these other countries that have very few school shootings. It just doesn't happen at school very often because school isn't a big part of their culture. As we said, different manifestations, but still the same sort of thing, the same sort of terrible thing. Now, I made this point on Twitter yesterday, and I was immediately informed that my argument isn't valid because when people say that we're the only place in the world where this happens, they really, of course, just mean among Western countries. Well, that's a bit awkward, isn't it? So what you're saying is that only the predominantly white countries count? Is that So when you say the entire world, you're actually just talking about the white world. Now, uh, I don't agree with you that only the white countries count, only the predominantly white countries count. But, but let's just pretend that I do. Is it true that we're the only country in the Western world where this happens? No. In fact, a ranking of annual death rate per million from mass shootings in North America and Europe, according to World Population Review, puts us at number 11 behind Czech Republic, Belgium, Finland, Switzerland, Slovakia, Albania, Macedonia, France, Serbia, and Norway. Now, you could point out that Norway makes the list. In fact, it tops the list largely because of one major attack back in 2011. That's true. But that's what happens when you measure this on a per capita basis, which you have to because Norway has 5 million people and we have 330 million people. So if you're going to compare us in the number of people that are killed in mass shootings, the only fair way to do it is per capita. If you're measuring like the number of people who do anything, we're going to beat Norway on every measure for everything because we have so many more people than them. So when you measure it by per capita basis, the United States does not really stand out. In fact, John Lott with the Crime Prevention Research Center published a report um, about two years ago on this subject. And here's what it says in the abstract. It says, the U.S. is well below the world average in terms of the number of mass public shootings, and the global increase over time has become has been much bigger than for the United States. Over the 20 years from 1998 to 2017, our list contains 2,772 attacks and at least 5,764 shooters outside the United States and 62 attacks and 66 shooters within our country. By our count, the U.S. makes up less than 1.13% of the mass public shooters, 1.77% of their murders, and 2.19% of their attacks. All these are much less than the U.S.'s 4.6% share of the world population. Attacks in the U.S. are not only less frequent than other countries, they are also much less deadly on average. Out of the 101 countries where we have identified mass public shootings occurring, the United States ranks 66th 66th in the per capita frequency of these attacks and 56th in murder rate. Not only have these attacks been much more common outside the U.S., the U.S.'s share of these attacks has declined over time. And this is all the case, even though the U.S. is unique in having such a large and demographically mixed population. So what does this prove? That we don't have a problem? That we should do nothing to protect our kids in school? Obviously not. All it proves is that the narrative from the left is false. And the fact that it's false is important. Because the truth is important. So when they say we're the only country where this happens, that is not true on any level, by any measure, no matter how you're looking at it. And you cannot solve a problem by misrepresenting it. But, but of course, they're not trying to solve the problem. They're trying to exploit it. And that's an entirely different thing from solving it. 
And that is why all of the people pushing these false narratives, not just the women on The View, though perhaps especially them, for this and many other reasons, are canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Vodowski. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. And hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Beto O'Rourke turns a somber news conference in a grieving community into a petty campaign stunt. Barack Obama and Joe Biden exploit the shooting in Texas to bring attention to George Floyd. And the UN decries monkeypox coverage as homophobic and racist. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. Michael Knowles Show.